Well, it is a, a rich honor to be with you today. I'm grateful for the opportunity to be here, and I bring greetings to you from Grace Life Church of Edmonton. So many of you have already expressed to me how you've been praying for us, have been praying for us, and we are grateful for your support and your prayers and the stand that we took some years ago. I want to take this opportunity, even as I stand in this pulpit, just to recognize the impact that this pulpit has had on my own life. No pulpit, save now my own, has been more formative in molding me into the man that I am today. And so I want to thank the Lord God for the the ministry of John MacArthur and his impact on my life. My assignment this evening is the persecution of the remnant. And given the moment we find ourselves in, this topic is begging for attention. Many of us have simply had it so good for so long that we are rather ignorant about persecution. And so our aim in this session is to mitigate at least some of that ignorance. And at the outset, to set the table for this discussion, we need to highlight the connection between the government, and the spirit of Antichrist. And that's because the most intense and systemic seasons of persecution, both historically and prophetically, have come at the hands of government. Scripture undeniably anticipates the emergence of the Antichrist, a particular individual whose coming takes place in accord with the activity of Satan. Who will emerge from within government and will oppose and exalt himself above every so-called God or object of worship. And yet scripture also depicts Antichrist as a spirit or principle of rebellion. One that's at work throughout this present age. And that denies both the Father and the Son. And since the Antichrist is to emerge from within government, we shouldn't be surprised to see the spirit of Antichrist already at work in government, whereby governments conduct themselves in an Antichrist manner, by refusing to subject themselves to the authority of God, and by assuming to themselves total authority over their people. In fact, I think it can be said that governments all over the world are demanding to be worshipped, seeking total allegiance, and are therefore implicitly exalting themselves to a seat that exclusively belongs to God. And so the spirit of Antichrist is a principle of rebellion that seeks to assume the authority of God by not only seeking to remove God from society, but also by asserting itself in his place, all in an effort to display itself as being God. And really, that governments are doing this is not that difficult to demonstrate. All of the creational norms that are evident in Genesis are under attack. The definition of gender, the definition of marriage, the priority and authority of the family, the sanctity of life, biblical sexuality, and even the enduring nature of the earth itself. Satan is presently at work in and through governments in a futile effort to uncreate what God has created. 
and to both legislate and enforce biblical norms out of existence. And so governments are essentially asserting themselves as the creator and are attempting to rewrite the creation account. And really, if that weren't enough, in recent years, not only has government attempted to usurp the headship of Christ over his church, but even now is seeking to outlaw the gospel under the banners of conversion therapy and hate crimes. And as governments attempt to establish total authority over every other sphere of authority, it's going to be the faithful remnant that are going to be on the receiving end of government oppression as we both firmly and faithfully refuse to yield to their tyranny and not only warn them of the coming day of judgment, but even call them to pay homage to the Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And so it's with that that we now turn to 2 Timothy chapter 3, and specifically verse 12. But I want to read from verse 10 just to get a bit of the context. 2 Timothy chapter 3, beginning in verse 10. The Apostle Paul writes, Now you followed my teaching, conduct, purpose, faith, patience, love, perseverance, persecutions and sufferings, such as happened to me at Antioch, Iconium, and at Lystra. What persecutions I endured, and out of them all the Lord saved me. Indeed, all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Now as we come to this verse, it's worth pointing out that the life of the one who penned it epitomizes its essence. And that means that the declaration of verse 12 isn't only supported by the inspiration of Scripture, but is also supported by the credibility of Paul's life. In fact, even as Paul writes this, he is in prison for his allegiance to Christ. And his death is imminent. Imminent, rather. And so Paul is writing this epistle as a faithful man of God in a context of a world that's hostile to Christ. And Paul's aim is to ready Timothy, to prepare Timothy for the looming absence of Paul in his life, to place the baton of ministry squarely in Timothy's hand, that the ministry of the gospel would continue to flourish even in Paul's absence. And there's reason to believe that Timothy had been overcome by a spirit of timidity, that circumstances both in the church and out had stoked the fear of man within him. That opposition from within the church and Nero's persecution from without had shipped away at his resolve. And a lot was riding on Timothy. He was the next in line. And so the success of the gospel was in some sense dependent on his faithfulness. And it's possible that Timothy was finding it difficult to process Paul's imprisonment. Why was there so much resistance? Why was Paul being persecuted? Why was the persecution at that time so intense? 
Was it maybe indicative of some error in their approach? And so Paul sets the record straight and declares, indeed, all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. And in that statement, we're going to see six features of persecution. Six features of persecution. That we would be prepared for persecution and would faithfully stand firm in the face of it to the honor and glory of Christ. And the first is this. The certainty of persecution. The certainty of persecution. Look again at verse 12 and notice that first word. It says, indeed, all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. And it's with that opening word, rendered indeed, that Paul makes this statement emphatic. Declaring the absolute certainty of persecution. Persecution is inevitable. It is unavoidable. It is inescapable. And that means that Paul's life isn't an anomaly. As though Paul's life were some exception to the rule. Instead, Paul's life sets the standard. Especially since his life was modeled after who? The life of Christ. And really, that this is Paul's intent is evident from the immediate context. Because it's on the heels of rehearsing his own persecutions that he makes this declaration, indeed, all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Now, why can Paul be so certain about this? Why is Paul so absolutely certain about persecution and the reality of its coming? What was it in his theology that makes persecution so inevitable? Well, a case can be made from his eschatology. In fact, he outlines his eschatological expectation in verses 1 and following. Look at it. 2 Timothy 3.1, But realize this, that in the last days difficult times will come, for men will be lovers of self, lovers of money, Boastful, arrogant, revilers, disobedient to parents, ungrateful, unholy, unloving, irreconcilable, malicious gossips, without self-control, brutal, haters of good, treacherous, reckless, conceited, lovers of pleasure, rather than lovers of money, or rather than God, holding to a form of godliness, although they have denied its power. That's Paul's eschatological expectation. And so certainly a case can be made that he's so certain about the reality of coming persecution on the basis of his eschatology. But even then, Paul's emphatic declaration wasn't contingent on some future day. Everything necessary for the certainty of his claim was already in place. Again, his life epitomized this. And so his certainty must have come from his theology of the nature of this present age between the two comings of Christ, that in this age, Satan is incredibly active, that he is the ruler of this world, John 12, 31, and that the whole world lies in his power, 1 John 5, 19, that he is the prince of the power of the air who is currently at work in the sons of disobedience, Ephesians 2, 2, that he is the God of this world who has blinded the minds of the unbelieving so that they might not see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, 2 Corinthians 4.4, that in the context of the very world system that he has in place, he has organized mankind in rebellion against God, 
that he is actively deceiving the nations, Revelation 20 and verse 3, that he prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour, 1 Peter 5, 8, that he is both a murderer and the father of lies, John 8, 44, and that he is the deceiver, 2 Corinthians eleven three, who even disguises himself as an angel of light, 2 Corinthians eleven four, or 14 rather. And so Paul understood that the Christian life runs entirely against the grain of this world. That if you're going to live a life that is faithful to Christ, you are going to be swimming against the current. And that in this age, opposition, oppression, and persecution are just par for the course. And not just that, but absolutely certain. And so you have to understand That if you're going to be a follower of Christ and a faithful one at that, you are going to be met with persecution. Paul is laying down the certainty of this reality. It is going to take place. There are no exemptions. That's the certainty of persecution. Now second, the condition of persecution. The condition of persecution. And really this gets into the scope or extent of persecution. Notice the next word in verse 12. Indeed, all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. So persecution isn't just certain, it's reserved for all. And yet, as is often the case, this all is qualified. There's a condition that must be met to qualify for this persecution. What's the condition? That you be one who desires to live godly in Christ Jesus. And so if you desire to live godly in Christ Jesus, then you will be persecuted. It is a foregone conclusion. And again, that means there are no exemptions for those who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus. That is the scope or the extent of this declaration. In fact, to bypass persecution... All you would have to do is conform yourself to the world around you. To allow the world to press you into its mold, do that and you'll be able to avoid persecution. And you might be thinking, well, James, don't all believers, true believers, desire to live godly in Christ Jesus? Isn't the condition just another way to describe a genuine follower of Christ? Well, there are at least two factors that can impact whether a true believer actually lives godly in Christ Jesus in any given situation. One pertains to the will of God. You see, to live in a godly manner in any given moment necessitates that you know God's will. That you understand what godliness demands of you. And situations can arise that are both complex and controversial. Where two Christians can look at that situation and come out on completely different ends of the situation. And I'm just thinking, is there an example that would fit this particular situation? I could just have an illustration right now. That would be so helpful. And so discerning God's will as revealed in his word is critical. 
So the will of God. That can impact whether or not a person lives godly in Christ Jesus in any given moment, whether they understand the will of God. The other pertains to fear. Fear is an incredibly compelling emotion. And when obedience has the potential to come at an immense cost, fear can win out and can thwart the obedience of the true believer. And so there will be times when obedience will demand courage. And a lack of courage can shape one's conduct. In fact, a person who is fearful can even allow that feel, or fear rather, shape their handling of Scripture. Where their fear actually begins to influence their conclusion about the will of God. Where they allow their fear to drive their exegesis to come to a conclusion that would bypass the difficulty of the moment they're in. And so in either case, true believers can avoid what would have otherwise been totally unavoidable. And that has massive implications for pastoral ministry. As a pastor, you have the responsibility of informing God's people of his will. You have the responsibility of stewarding their consciences, of of, of instilling the word of God in them and, and showing them how it is that they're to walk in this world. What a responsibility that is. And so not only is it critical that you get the will of God right, it is also critical that you are courageous in carrying it out. That's the condition of persecution. Now third, the catalyst of persecution. The catalyst of persecution. Again, notice the next part of verse 12. Indeed, all who desire, who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. The driving force behind that which results in persecution is desire. But the word used here for desire is more than a mere passing whim. This word expresses will, purpose, or resolve. And so the driving force behind that which results in persecution is an unwavering resolve. You say, well, where does this resolve come from? Well, in the first place, it comes from the Spirit of God in regeneration. When through the effectual call, we are infallibly and irresistibly summoned to new life in Christ and receive a new heart that beats for God. It's in regeneration that we receive an entirely new will, purpose, and resolve, an entirely new principle for life. And yet, though that be true, this newly implanted resolve needs to be nourished and nurtured. It needs to be developed and cultivated. And you develop it through the word, prayer, and obedience. And it would seem to me that we're in a moment when unwavering resolve has never been more vital. So how do you cultivate resolve? Well, I think it'd be helpful to think of resolve like a muscle. And you work that muscle through spirit-empowered obedience. 
And so you need to resolve to do whatever God demands in the face of any and all opposition, regardless of the outcome or cost. And then you need to work that muscle by following through in obedience. So what does that mean on a personal level? Well, in the first place, it means ordering the entirety of your life under the word of God. Letting God's word shape every aspect of your life. And both building in and cutting out anything that is necessary. In the second place, it means dealing honestly and seriously with your sin. Where you are in the habit of diligently putting on Christ and making no provision for the flesh. Not relying on the spiritual progress of yesteryear. So not only do you need to bring your entire life under the word of God, you need to be serious and precise in dealing with the sin that's in your life. And then in the third place, it means standing firm and obeying God in those big moments in your life. You know this. There are going to be some moments that come to you in your life that are going to be big moments where you are going to know exactly what it is that you need to do and the stakes are high. When all the chips are down and in those moments, you need to obey God. And no doubt, you can testify along with me that when you obey God, he blesses that. In fact, even if you obey God to your death, that is going to result in eternal blessing. What does it mean on a pastoral level? Well, in the first place, it never means being cruel, harsh, or heavy-handed. In fact, there should really be times when you know exactly what you need to do in the context of your church, and you are agonizing over it because you are burdened for your people. And you love your people. And you realize that what you need to do is right before God, but you know that it's going to challenge them and you're concerned about the impact of that on them. And so it never means being cruel, harsh, or heavy-handed. But it does mean faithfully preaching the word of God in season and out, never rounding off the edges, but always delivering God's word as intended. And it also means this, that you need to bring the entirety of the the life of the church under the word of God, patiently and prayerfully, but bring the whole life of the church under the word of God that Christ would be head over that church and would be able to exercise his headship in full across the board. And so you want to bring the entire church by the grace of God patiently and prayerfully under a biblical philosophy of ministry. And as you faithfully work the muscle of resolve, on both the personal and pastoral levels, then with the enabling grace of the Spirit, you will have the resolve you need to stand firm in those moments that you need to. To walk in courageous obedience in the face of any and all opposition to the honor and glory of God. The driving force behind that which results in persecution is unwavering resolve. That's the catalyst of persecution. Now fourth, the cause of persecution the cause of persecution. And it's here that we get into that which triggers persecution. Notice the next part of verse 12. Indeed, all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. 
So it's godly living that results in persecution. It's a life that is set apart to God, manifesting itself in outward righteousness that triggers persecution. And I want to flesh out the significance of this. Just consider the fact that the world hates us for a moment. John 15, 18, Jesus says, If the world hates you, you know that it has hated me first. So we know very well that the world hates us, and that hatred is innate. John 15, 19, if you were of the world, the world would love its own, but because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, because of this the world hates you. So the world hates us because we belong to the realm above. We are citizens of heaven. And yet, though that's true, there's something we can do to avoid ever experiencing this hatred. All we have to do is become like the world. Compromise on the truth. Accommodate the world's ways, values, and ideologies. Set aside godly living. And become essentially indistinguishable. Do that. And though the whole world hates us, it won't really feel like it does. In fact, we may even feel like we have friendship with the world. And so why is that? It's because though the world hates us, its hatred needs an occasion to find its expression. And there are two fundamental ways that we trigger the world's hatred— And both are the product of godly living. One is a godly life itself. A life that is worthy of the gospel. And the other is the proclamation of the truth. And the reason they trigger the world's hatred is because both testify against the world that what? Its deeds are evil. And the world hates that. And yet both are essential to a faithful gospel ministry. We are to proclaim the death and resurrection of Christ, which necessitates testifying against the world that its deeds are evil, and we're to live in a manner that lends credibility to that message. And by the way, that is our testimony. There is so much confusion around what our testimony is, and it isn't the degree to which the world likes us or thinks well of us. Our testimony is the death and resurrection of Christ for the forgiveness of sins combined with a life that testifies to the saving power of that message. And when we're faithful to both, it's going to trigger the world's hatred. And when its hatred is triggered, we're going to be persecuted especially by tyrannical governments. So the mechanism that triggers persecution is godly living. And really, it's that truth that exposes a number of faulty notions about persecution. For example, some seem to be saying that the only time we should defy the governing authorities is when we're being singled out. That then and only then should we practice civil disobedience. No, Paul is unmistakably clear. Indeed, all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. It's godly living that triggers persecution. 
And that means that godly living goes before persecution. We don't wait to be persecuted to then start living godly. We live godly, and that results in persecution. Not to mention the fact that totalitarian governments will endeavor to oppress every aspect of society, not just Christians. And we have an obligation when that takes place to stand firm and be the salt and light that God has called us to be. How about this? That so long as we're allowed to preach the gospel, no persecution is taking place. That so long as we are permitted to preach the gospel, no one is being persecuted. And yet Paul doesn't say that all who desire to preach the gospel will be persecuted. Instead, he says that all who desire to live godly will be. Of course, preaching the gospel will trigger persecution, but it's not limited to that. Or how about this? That persecution will come from merely identifying as a Christian. That persecution will come from merely identifying as a Christian. And that day may come. And if it does, it'll certainly weed out the truth from the false. Because all the false will be going, yep, don't know Christ. But that said, there are countless people who merely claim to be Christian and won't ever experience a hint of persecution. This country is loaded with them. Again, Paul is unmistakably clear. Indeed, all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. That's the cause of persecution, godly living. Now, fifth, the criterion of persecution. The criterion of of persecution, and by criterion we mean standard. Notice the next part of verse 12. Indeed, all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. So the standard for godly living, the kind of living that results in persecution is who? The Lord Jesus Christ. And the language that Paul uses here is that of our union with Christ, whereby we have been incorporated into Christ and therefore share a common spiritual life with him. And so godly living is defined as that which flows from living in vital union with Christ. As we richly abide in the all-supreme and sufficient vine, and as his word abides in us. And what's amazing about this is that the language here of in Christ Jesus doesn't just bring our union into view. It also brings the lordship of Christ into view. That Christ is the supreme authority over every other authority. That he is seated now in the heavens far above all rule, authority, power, and dominion. That all authority in heaven and on earth have been given to him. And that he is therefore the king of kings and lord of lords and is worthy of our highest allegiance, loyalty, and commitment. And so our lives are to testify to the lordship of Christ. We're to live in such a way that his lordship is on full display. That he is the supreme authority over every aspect of our lives. And when you live like that, conflict with the world is inevitable. It's going to come. Because you are living by a completely different rule of life. One that's at complete odds with the principle that governs this world. 
And I think in light of the historical moment that we find ourselves in, this would be a good time to revisit the cost of following Christ. Jesus says, if anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me, Luke 9.23. To follow in his footsteps, to take up your own tool of execution and join the death march, to be willing to lose absolutely everything for Christ. To confess with the Apostle Paul that to live is Christ and die is what? Game. And so have you truly counted the cost of what it means to follow Christ? Is the Lordship of Christ evident in your life? Are you holding anything back? Are you ready to lose it all for Christ? I really can't think of a better opportunity to go all in for Christ than this moment right now. To be willing to lay everything on the line and lose it all for him. And just think of the Lord's words in Matthew 5.10. Blessed are those who have been persecuted for the sake of righteousness for what? Theirs is the kingdom of heaven. So Christ is the standard for the kind of living that results in persecution. That's the criterion of persecution. Now, lastly, sixth, the content of persecution. The content of persecution. And it's here that we see what persecution is. Notice the next part of verse 12. Indeed, all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. That word rendered persecuted means to harass someone, especially because of beliefs. And yet beliefs can't ever be divorced from behavior. In fact, Paul indicates elsewhere that sound doctrine is that which conforms to godliness, 1 Timothy 6.3. And so doctrine can't be divorced from duty. Orthodoxy always impacts orthopraxy. And so it's as you live out your beliefs that you will be persecuted. That you will come up against opposition and that you will come under the oppressive hand of those who oppose Christ. And as I said... The most intense and systemic seasons of persecution, both historically and prophetically, take place at the hands of government. And the reason that is, is because government bears the sword, Romans 13.4. Not to mention the fact that Satan is often most operative in government. I mean, if you're going to order the entire world in rebellion against God and lead that kind of a rebellion, then you need to have what? Ownership over the government. And I think it goes without saying that the biggest, threat, the biggest threat we face at present is government. And they're our biggest threat because we're their biggest threat. And both our doctrine and our duty are going to continue to usher us into conflict with them. 
And when that conflict comes, we're going to be faithful and courageous and stand firm. Now, I want to make sure we can apply this verse properly. I want to make sure we understand what this verse says about persecution. And to do that, I'm going to use an obvious example, the very example I alluded to earlier. One of the big debates when churches defied the governing authorities by refusing to comply with their COVID protocols was whether or not they were being persecuted. And so in light of this verse, pop quiz, were they being persecuted or not? And the answer is undeniably yes, insofar as those churches truly desired to live godly in Christ Jesus and made a legitimate case from Scripture, they were most definitely persecuted. It is undeniable. You can disagree with our position. That's certainly your prerogative. We may have to agree to disagree on that. But what you cannot say is that they were not or we weren't being persecuted. When you come up against opposition for your beliefs, which always result in behavior, you're going to come up against persecution. And that's exactly what happened. We were not free to practice our convictions. And as you know, some of us experienced a significant measure of oppression. So that's the content of persecution. So what have we seen? We've seen that persecution for the faithful follower of Christ is absolutely inevitable. We've seen that persecution isn't reserved for the spiritual elite, but for all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus. We've seen that the underlying catalyst that generates the conduct that results in persecution is desire. We've seen that godly conduct witnessed by the world is that which triggers persecution. We've seen that Christ is the standard for all godliness. And we've seen that persecution takes place when you are oppressed for living out your biblical convictions. So two questions. First, why would you ever be willing to suffer persecution? Why in the world would you ever be willing to follow in the footsteps of the Apostle Paul? Well, for one, it's a duty. You have been bought with a price. Therefore, glorify God in your body, 1 Corinthians 6.20. You are not your own. You are owned by another. And so you are under obligation to use your life however God sees fit to use it. And to his glory. Amen? And so by the mercies of God, I urge you in this moment to present yourself as a living and holy sacrifice to God as your spiritual service of worship and lay your life down on his altar to be used however he sees fit. Let him do with your life whatever he wills. And so why would you do it? Well, it's a matter of duty. And for two, it's a delight. Why in the world would it ever be a delight 
to suffer persecution for Christ because he's worthy. He's worthy. Revelation 5.12, Worthy is the Lamb that was slain to receive power and riches and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. He's worthy. He's worthy. And so you and I want to join the company of the Apostle Paul and all those throughout history who have laid down their lives for the sake of Christ and the gospel and rejoice when we're considered worthy to suffer shame for his name, Acts 5.41. And even do so knowing that it's through many tribulations that we must enter the kingdom of God, Acts 14.22. And so it's a duty, but it's also a delight. Second question. How do you prepare for persecution? How do you prepare for it? Well, in addition to everything that's been said so far, you need to become increasingly detached from this world. You need to take everything that you hold dear in your life, and you need to bring it before God in prayer. And you need to wrestle with him in prayer until you can honestly say, Lord, it's all yours. Do with it whatever you will. And so even now, you can call to mind those things that you cherish. Loved ones. Whatever it is. And you need to be able to bring that before the Lord in prayer. And you need to not get up until you have settled that it's his. And you're willing to lose it all if it means his honor and glory. You need to be ready to kiss this world goodbye. And if you can honestly do that, and everything else that we've talked about is in place, then you are going to be ready when it comes. And know this, that it's seasons of persecution that typically result in the most fruitful times of ministry. You can see that in Acts. You can see that throughout history. You can certainly see that in some churches that stood tall in the last battle that took place. Some of the most fruitful seasons for gospel ministry take place in the midst of persecution. And that means that persecution is tied to our mission, the Great Commission, the very reason that we're here, that Christ would receive the full reward for his sacrifice. So not just duty, not just delight, but faithfulness to our call. Indeed, all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Let's pray together. Father, we come before you and we thank you for this moment that we have together. That we can bow before you in this moment with all that's on our minds, all that's on our hearts, 
and give you thanks and praise for what you've done in our lives, but also, Father God, to beg you and ask you to keep us faithful all the way to the end. We confess that Christ is worthy. And so, Father, if persecution should come, and we know that it will, give us grace to stand tall and to be obedient all the way to the end. For the glory of Christ, amen.